Welcome to another episode of International History Now. I'm your host, Yorgos Yanakopoulos, a historian based at the LSE and City University in London. And I'm Dina Gusenova, a historian based at LSE. In this episode, we are joined by two LSE-based colleagues, Vladislav Zubok and Lea Yipi, for a broad discussion on the occasion of the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the socialist bloc, or what in English is often somewhat misleadingly called the end of communism. What began with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the collapse of the socialist regimes of Central Europe and the Balkans, from Czechoslovakia to Romania and elsewhere, culminated in 1991 in the formal dissolution of the Soviet Union. This is a story of transitions, of social and political transformations, a story which is told in different ways and with varying intensity across Eastern Europe. Vladislav and Lea have just published two books that, despite their differences, offer new and exciting perspectives on the wider topic. Vladislav Zubok's Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union, out with Yale University Press this year, rethinks the inevitability of the Soviet collapse, as the author puts it, by carefully reconstructing the political landscape of the Gorbachev years. Lea Yip is Free is a deeply political autobiographical account of what it means to be coming of age at the end of history in socialist and post-socialist Albania, drawing from the book's provocative subtitle. Despite their different perspectives, both books may be seen as generational books. The one offers a collective biography of leaders and leadership, but also of a generation experiencing a political transition. The other offers a more personal but deeply political narrative of the kinds of transformations taking place in a small, quote-unquote, peripheral state, Albania. So we, we want to begin with the story of the collapse of the USSR. And Vladislav, I want to approach, before I ask you what are the causes of the collapse of the USSR, I want to ask you a bit how you approach the cast of characters in your book. You know, at one level, the grammatical subject in the sense of collapse is the Soviet Union, but the agency behind this kind of story is actually attributed to this very wide range of, of characters that are in this in this complex narrative. I mean, apart from the obvious figures like Gorbachev, Yeltsin, and so on, and the Council of the People's Deputies, you've also interviewed just a wide range of people, some of whom would call themselves first wave Democrats. Thank you, Dina. My choice was dictated by, I guess, uh, uh, my search for the causes of the Soviet collapse. What happened to the Soviet Union was, in my opinion, not preordained, and uh, it came as a surprise to quite a number of people, including myself. And, uh, in a, and by that time, the Soviet Union was not exactly a communist state. The Communist Party was quite powerful, but no, no longer uh, you know, a powerful institutionally. Gorbachev deliberately ruled through a new set of institutions. So it was not a, a fall in the sense of a communist a country, a fully communist country. It was in part democratic already. My, so my choice of a characters uh, was dictated by this main question, why are certain people began to uh, to want much more than what Gorbachev offered? And Gorbachev offered a lot. He offered unprecedented number of uh, civic uh, and political freedoms he created in the you know, institutions, uh, representative institutions. He uh, authorized and then tolerated complete freedom of expression. 1990 was a, a year when anything in the world could be published in the Soviet Union, from Solzhenitsyn to pornography. It's about the characters that really mattered, because because of the you know, Gorbachevian atmosphere of glasnost, and uh, because television 
uh, although still state and funded by the state, invited all those people, uh, 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 like in Putin's Russia today, they were all on television, they were all on radio, they disseminated and expanded their ideas and proposals to unprecedented number of people. And I, I, I was at the time in Moscow, I could hear uh, with my own ears how millions of people, including people who would never, ever listen to an intellectual, were trying to understand what leading economists, liberal uh, liberal mathematicians, liberal physicists, liberal ex- experts on Italian Renaissance who suddenly turned, you know, political liberals, uh, what they were about to say. That was a totally unique, uh, unique atmosphere. And I follow those people and the evolution of their ideals and proposals all the way to the collapse, all the way to December 1991. At the time of when the USSR collapsed, the population was 287 million, of which only 145 million were, were Russians. But even of those 145, 25 million actually worked in the non-Russian republics. So Ukraine, Belarus, Central Asia, the Caucasus. Uh, so when, when this kind of striving for freedom, in a sense, begins for this, for this group, there's also a very strong conflict between the kind of Moscow-based liberals and the, uh, the sort of non-Russian independents that are, that, that are forming part of, of, of this group. Uh, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit about this splitting of the ways or splitting of the fortunes, in a sense, between the Russians and the non-Russians in the, um, in the aftermath of USSR's collapse, or in, in the process, rather, of USSR's collapse. I think uh, in 1991, all, uh, it was a little bit like an, intele- an intellectual international all anti-communist intellectuals unite. So, you know, one of the theses of my book is that the Bolts benefited hugely from the position of the Russians, uh, Russian intellectuals, Russian Democrats, because without that assistance, uh, without the assistance of democratic Russia movement, without Yeltsin, who was, in a sense, an informal head of this movement, the Bolts would not have gotten... Uh, their independence in such an, uh, an uncomplicated and straightforward way they did. And uh, even Ukraine, even Ukraine with spe- special special kind of uh, uh, story uh, that uh, Ukrainian-Russian relations deserve, uh, Ukrainians at the time could totally rely on Moscow Democrats and supporting their, uh, their uh, independence. Now, my uh, favorite story is... Uh, you know, Russian uh, woman uh, Democrat, Galina Starovoitova, a wonderful person who was assassinated later in 1998, um, uh, on the day of the Ukrainian uh, referendum and vote, went with a bunch of flowers to the Ukrainian um, um, uh, cultural center and uh, congratulated them on on independence. And, you know, uh, he, she recalled they expected uh, tanks, not flowers, and they never expected a Russian woman to, 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 to congratulate them for this independence. So it should be stressed, uh, particularly in current context, that the Russian position originally uh, was very much in favor of, uh, you know, disbanding the, the empire and giving independence to those intellectuals. But then, of course, uh, 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 w- uh, was another story when they discovered, to again, to their surprise, that uh, the Bolts, the Ukrainians, uh, the Georgians and others, the Armenians, the Azeris, um, the Central Asians and so on and so forth, they had their own national agenda. 
and uh, they did not want to continue this international of 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 uh, liberal uh, democrats because um you know what happened um they first thing that they did after 1991 actually at the end of 1991 they blamed their friends to be russian imperialists democratic imperialists and that was the beginning of parting of of their ways I should say, however, this is the story of intellectuals. Economically, everyone from, uh, uh, including the Bolt, everyone uh, um, uh, suffered terribly uh, from the collapse of the uh, Soviet economy. That was inevitable. Uh, and that, uh, in a sense, equaled the field. But the fact that in the Baltic states they had an idea of national independence regained, that in Georgia they had the same kind of idea, in Ukraine they had the same kind of idea, that mitigated a lot uh, the factor of economic suffering and economic losses. That was, I would say, another a salutary illusion of nation uh, that came to their to the to their rescue in a sense, and uh, in this sense, they avoided uh, much of the trouble and 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 backlash that uh, uh, Russian nationalism presented after 1990. I want to bring in Lea, and you know, Lea, you start the book in you know that moment Vladislav talks about, uh, and 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 uh, you know, you a young uh, girl around the statue of Stalin that's fallen down. So, you know, what a what are your early thoughts of that particular? How can you reconstruct, you know, your thoughts in that particular moment, and what what led you to write this book, which is a more personal, autobiographical, but also a political account of the moment that that Vladislav just talked about. Albania was a very different and interesting context compared to the Soviet Union, what was going on in the rest of Europe at the time, because it was the only country in Europe that had not really gone in Eastern Europe that had not gone through destalinization. And in fact, had broken with all its East European allies because of the uh, invitation to revisit the cult of Stalin, which Albanian, Albania wasn't ready to do at that time and which Hoxha had insisted on was a mistake. And so we had ended up in 1990 as this completely isolated state who was alienated by all other East European countries and was also alienate, had been alienated for a while since the fortress from Yugoslavia, which was at the border and was also alienated from China, which had been its ally in the 70s after the split with the Soviet Union. And so in a way, the realities of the Eastern Bloc that surrounded Albania were very remote because we had been talking, uh, the official, the state propaganda for many, many years had been that there was a crisis in Eastern Europe and that these socialist states would collapse because they had not been rigorous enough and they had not fallen through and that there was a sense of disillusionment and disenchantment But there was also in the propaganda, which I experienced as a child, I was 11 at the time, the, there was no concept that the same would happen to Albania, precisely because the path was so different, because it hadn't really been part of these changes in Eastern Europe. It had resisted Glasnost and Perestroika. I mean, these just were not questions in Albania at the time. And so at the time, I remember in 1990, there were uh, rumors And news sources filtered from Italian or from Yugoslav television around what was going on in the rest of Eastern Europe. So, you know, Solidarność first and then, you know, Gorbachev. And the thing that really hit a nerve in Albania was the murder of Ceausescu in Romania, because that was seen as the experience that was closest to the experience of Albania in some way. And 
I wrote the book in this, you know, from the child's perspective because I wanted to reconstruct in some ways this confusion and this difference in outlook from the state's point of view on the one hand and from the family's point of view on the other. So I grew up in this dissident family that had always been hostile to uh, socialism in Albania, that had suffered the repercussions. Lots of my grandfathers, those ancestors, my two grandfathers were both in prison. My great-grandfather had been a fascist and so on. So basically it was a very particular family history. But even within that family, no discussions around politics happened that were not filtered through state propaganda. So people talk in, spoke in code around me. And so I could hear these rumors about what was going on in the rest of Eastern Europe, but I had no way of really knowing what the reality was because the, there was such a difference between the state discourse and what you got in school. For example, we had moral education class in school in which our teacher talked about hooligans in the rest of Eastern Europe and the fact that we didn't have hooligans because we hadn't gone through the same processes. And then the discussions at home, which were very different, but which I had no way of understanding and were very mysterious. And so that's, in a way, the narrative of the book. That's the, what frames it, is this uh, story of transition told from the point of view of a child who is equally subjected to these formative influences of the state on the one hand and the family on the other, but in which case these two perspectives are completely against each other, are at, at odds with each other and in conflict. I just wondered if you could say a bit about your mother and your father in the 90s. You know, there was this, it, it seemed like a very different system was opening up, particularly for a woman in politics. In a sense, similar things happened very briefly in Russia in the 90s, that there were suddenly these these uh, women that em emerged in, in politics that had been kind of completely blanked out by a system that had initially promised complete human emancipation and particularly for, for, for women in politics. But that's only one example. Um, so there was, the, there was this moment, it seemed, of, of, of real kind of opening of prospects somehow. But I was wondering how your observation of your own family members added this nuance to your story. I didn't think of myself as writing about family members. And I also didn't think of myself as writing about my life in a way. These were just examples of people who had lived through changes and who had interpreted these changes each with their own lenses, which they had in some ways inherited from the past and which they also had to adapt given the new circumstances. So it was, I suppose part of it was difficult and emotional and, and personal. But once I made this decision that, you know, this is my life is actually not that interesting. It's only interesting insofar as it's the life of ordinary people in this country as they go through this transition. And in particular, I was interested in writing on different ideas of freedom because I was always interested in this idea of freedom under liberal and, and socialist systems. And so for me, the characters were exemplars of how different ideas of freedom are lived and what kind of choices they make and what kind of constraints they face. And so my mother, for example, was a good example of what you might call a liberal negative idea of freedom, which is freedom from. So she was insisting that you are free insofar as nobody stops you from doing certain things like traveling or dressing in a certain way or saying, saying certain things in public or being politically vocal, expressing your, your dissidence. And this is what animates all her struggles in the book, which is why she, for example, when she leads this women's organization, she begins to struggle with affirmative action and with positive discrimination and with women quotas and all these things, because this is not never how she understood freedom for her freedom was just freedom from, in a way. And my father had a different idea. He's a more, more of a kind of classical Western social democrat, I suppose. He had more social idea of freedom and a more positive, perhaps, also idea of freedom, which is, you know, it's not enough to be stopped from doing certain things. 
you are only free insofar as you have certain opportunities to realize yourself. And his dilemmas become very relevant when he ends up being the CEO of the port of Duras and he's in charge of modernizing and delivering structural reforms, which effectively means sacking people. But of course, when structural reforms are being mentioned and are part of the vocabulary, it's never said that this is what their cost is in policy papers. It's always about, you know, modernizing and bringing, developing new economy and developing new institutions and liberalizing society. It was important to tell these stories as lived experiences and also as encounters with other people. And so there's always other characters like the Roma people who work in the port or the various teachers or the various members, you know, the World Bank employee who is the man who is actually inspiring and informing on these decisions and so on. And it's important to tell the stories through characters because it's only through through characters that the costs of freedom and the sacrifices of freedom become vivid and materialized. And so that's why it was, for me, important to, to tell the story in that way and to write it in that way. I just wanted to uh, to point out that even though your books couldn't be in some ways more contrasting in approach, and also the two cases simply are so different of Albania and the Soviet Union, there was something extremely connected for me in the experience of reading them. And that's this peeling away of trust that constantly happens somehow. Every time there is some kind of certainty about what a, what a concept means, something happens. And then the reader and and the I guess the person living in this period loses trust in that concept entirely. And in Leah's book, it's your grandmother that is a sort of inspiration that connects the dots. One of the problems with living through transition is that you question all the categories that you have inherited one way or another under both of these systems, right? So you're kind of and so you're left with this fundamental doubt and fundamental skepticism around all kinds of contract constructs around you. It leaves me a bit uncomfortable. I mean, I don't know how you feel about this, Vladislav, but I, I'm always a bit worried because I feel that it's for when thinking about the future, it's good to be skeptic and, and it's good to be a disbeliever, but you can't be too much of a disbeliever because that can also be kind of paralyzing. I'm always left wondering, okay, so where do I recover some kind of authority, I guess? And in part, the story in the book is that my grandmother, I suppose you're right, Dina, acts as this figure of moral authority because she's someone who has also lived through the fall of different systems, both personally and in terms of the states in which she lives. So she lives through the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and then she comes from a very privileged background and goes to Albania, and she loses all her privileges, gets deported, has a very difficult life under communism, and then communism also falls, and she recovers somehow her her privileges, or he re she recovers her position, but she never quite recovers the, the faith in these systems and the fact that, you know, there is always ideologies and there's always ways in which stories are told to you. And similarly, I found in Vladislav's book, there are many characters that seem to be grasping for like historical analogies. So like the Congress of uh, People's Deputies happens and they think about 1789 or something, or or they constantly think about 1941 or the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. They, they keep thinking, for, looking out for reference points. And it seems from, from, from our point of view now that these are all completely the wrong reference points. I mean, this has nothing to do with 1789 somehow. It's, it's something entirely different. And they're not looking in their immediate uh, sort of vicinity in terms of like Central Europe, what's going on in Berlin or something. It I think Leah uh, raised an excellent concept of reality. What is reality for those people who go through this monumental sweeping uh, transition in a matter of sometimes days uh, at maximum months? 
it's a concept that historians grapple with it, his historian uh, and participants even more, I should say. When I wrote my book, I had the luxury of time. I could uh, put my manuscript down and uh, resume writing later on. But participants don't have this luxury of time. We should always remember it. So they live in so-called reality that they imagine. And, uh, you know, it's we all need intellectual crutches, particularly we intellectuals, but even people, so, so-called masses that participate in history. So um, Glasnost breaks out in the Soviet Union in 1990, huge confusion of minds. People try to find new anchors. This is why the importance of intellectuals at that time in the Soviet Union. But poor intellectuals also don't know what reality is. I remember myself standing in the square next to the, the you know, uh, ne- next to the Red Square in Moscow. Around me were 200,000 people listening to historian, uh, a historian of the French Revolution who became one of the leaders of uh, Democratic Russia movement talking the fire language about the future and everyone wanted to believe we all wanted to believe so but you know uh in again uh, i resisted the temptation just to pin them down oh oh you know they were wrong on this they were wrong on that because it, it's a precious moment of how history is made you know it can be made in one family i had my discussions with my own father he was totally pro boris yeltsin I had my doubts already at the time. So it can be in the family. It can be on a, on a, on the red square. It can be anyway. But they're going through human minds and human imagination. I wanted to, uh, I found what Vladislav was saying really interesting. And one of the things that I found extraordinary, actually thinking about these periods, also in Albania, but possibly also more generally, to go back to this question of what is reality I think one of the problems and in a way what made that period a period of crisis and in some ways was also responsible for the confusion that followed after is that in some ways we never have non-ideological lenses through which to look at reality. So we always tell, you know, we always describe reality with categories that are political categories, philosophical categories, intellectual categories that we deploy to kind of make sense of the world. I was going to write a book about freedom in the liberal and socialist traditions initially and I wanted to write about freedom in these traditions of political thought, but also as, as they had shaped institutions. And every time I thought about examples from real world institutions of both liberalism and socialism, I thought about what I had experienced and lived through in Albania. And what I found in thinking about this period in Albania at this moment of confusion in 1990 is that there was a sense that we had to, there, had, there was a fundamental rupture with all the intellectual categories that people had used up to that point to make sense of the world. And so there was a sense in which we don't want socialism, communism is dead as an idea, as an ideal, as a vision of society. What is capitalism? So all the kind of intellectual categories, uh, economic categories, the political categories that were used up to that point to make sense of the world, people rejected them and didn't want to have anything to do with them and found themselves having to make sense of reality and of the future without these intellectual categories, but also without really any really understanding of what the new categories were that were going to be. And so in Albania, for example, one I remember at some point the discussion in the 90s began to be, we need civil society. And nobody really had any clue what civil society actually was. Uh, it was. The idea was only that, and this is again talking about comparisons and historical reference points and so on, the idea was that in Eastern Europe, 
the Velvet Revolutions had come through with the help of some kind of civil society. And so we needed to now have civil society as well because our revolution, it wasn't clear how it had come about, but it clearly wasn't through civil society. And so then civil society becomes this new buzzword, which for me is exactly a fundamental replacement of the word party. So the party is gone, doesn't help you make sense of reality anymore. And then you have this new concept of civil society. And the same thing with all the other categories of transition, you know, shock therapy or um, market liberalism, structural reforms, all these intellectual categories that were appropriated in the 90s, basically because of a gap in understanding and because of a gap in fundamental categories with which we used to make sense of the world, but not because they had been selected as being any better or because they had been intellectually assessed or because people had had any sense of, you know, what results from the application of these categories to the future. And so for me, it really was a, a story of kind of one ideology that just goes overnight and sometimes with good reasons, but sometimes without good reasons. And then being endorsed with this other ideology, again, for sometimes maybe good reasons, but mostly for mysterious reasons, just because they are the ones that happen to be available to you at that point and that you need to make sense of the world. To add to exactly what you're saying, Leah, now you also provocatively say that, you know, Hayek, became, you know, where the new Marx, right? Speaking on this. But on the concept of categories to make sense of reality, something that struck me when reading your book is the role that education plays in the first part of the book, or part of the book and elsewhere in multiple levels from the, uh, you know, uh, school uh, teacher indoctrinating in the dogma to your own personal family history, the, the characters in your own family life. But importantly, education as a, uh, category that in within the ham- family household, the question of uh, you know people sent in prison is discussed. I'll interrupt you here because that's a very characteristic part of the book. So what you're describing is that the collapse of the regime also meant that suddenly your family could offer a translation of its own coded language uh, that they had actually used in front of you uh, to spare you uh, the, the, the details of the true family history. I just want to read a couple of sentences uh, from Lea's book, Free. You're saying, you're talking about December 1990. In the following days, the first opposition party was founded and my parents revealed the truth, their truth. They said that my country had been an open-air prison for almost half a century, that the universities which had haunted my family were, yes, educational institutions, but of a peculiar kind. I omit a few sentences. That what had been referred to as the initials of university towns in conversations, you mean, were actually various prison and deportation sites. B, M, S, that the different subjects of study corresponded to different official charges. To study international relations meant to be charged with treason. Literature stood for agitation and propaganda, and a degree in economics entailed a more minor crime, such as hiding gold. That students who became teachers were former prisoners who converted to being spies. So my question about education, that's also for uh, for Vladislav, is, you know, you both work in education in many different ways. So, you know, reflecting on these moments in history, what are kind of, do you think of them in terms of lessons that one needs to learn and lessons that you feel they need to communicate? This question of education, I suppose, in some at some level, speaks to this connection between ideology and reality that uh, I was just mentioning. So I feel that education is the process through which we make sense of the world and through which we learn to make sense of the world. And um, for me, when I talk about the period of socialist period in Albania, 
I felt education was really pervasive in society. There was this kind of yearning for education and a desire to know more. And I often also say how education was currency in the, in the way in which you didn't have, people didn't really compete for money. They couldn't compete for money. And there was no sense in which you could measure your achievements in monetary terms. But I often found that education was often the currency with which people competed. And this is partly why, you know, society was so competitive in class. And it was a very interesting combination of this complete openness to education and to knowledge and desire to accumulate more on the one hand, but also a very select range of things that you were exposed to because there was censorship. And so, um, you know, there was a whole range of literatures or authors that weren't really present because they couldn't be, they didn't pass the censorship. And so this, but in some ways, I found that because of censorship, people were more curious. And so they were actually constantly trying to break the boundary. They were constantly trying to expose themselves to new ideas and to new, um, new features of the world and so on. So for me, I guess I do think of education as really relevant. And I also, I guess, think of history as a process through which you can learn about the past and in some ways that knowledge of the past is possibly helpful in reflecting and and categorizing and and anticipating in some ways the future. But I think to go back to what Vladislav was saying, it's also very tricky because it can be, it's, you know, I was thinking about these comparisons in the 1990 Soviet Union with 1789 and so on. How much, how is, how can education, how can knowledge about the past actually really help you frame the future and what are the conditions under which that is actually productive as opposed to just a parody and a caricature of constantly trying to, when you're in this great moment of confusion, putting yourself in a different historical period and thinking, well, what would have, what would the protagonists have done now? And I think sometimes we have the same tendency now when you think about the current crisis and the way in which we think, well, this is clearly the categories of 1920s or the, the financial crisis or the great depression or the rise of fascism or the far right and so on we're always trying to reach back to the past because it's so hard for us to make sense of the future in a crisis that the only way in which you can try and orient yourself is by thinking about a historical analog in which to project yourself and as i say i think it's both productive but also misleading um uh, yeah i've been thinking about the use use of lessons Uh, there's there was even a course at harvard uh uh, use and misuse of history. I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, exercising our minds uh, um, to to try to reveal c- the causes of things. And and uh, I have no illusion about uh, the, you know, the uh, relativity of this process, I should say, a relativity of education in general. When I looked uh, in my, you know, when I did research in my book and looked at the highbrow intellectuals in the Soviet Union, I couldn't help seeing how little they understood on uh, the reality of Soviet economy and how wrong they were on uh, what would happen in international relations if they destroy the evil empire. They had this naive belief that if they destroy the evil empire and bring, uh, you know, a gift to Americans and the world of, uh, you know, the end of the fear of the great monster, the Soviet Union, and call themselves Russia, then it would somehow change the attitude to this Russia. They were rudely uh, surprised 
intellectuals, that is, knowing history, they were rudely surprised that when for a number of uh, people from Finland to Romania, uh, they still remained those bad Russians. You know, they had always been those bad Russians historically. So uh, causality is the uh, modest uh, exercise that uh, I would I engage with my students, trying to invite them in, into a conversations. If I could push both of you a bit further in terms of the characterization of what happened afterwards in Europe, I'm looking at two categories, essentially, nation and class. What are your thoughts about how these two categories can help us explain what happened in, in the 90s? Um, I mean, obviously, these will be kind of two very different stories when looking at Albania in the context of maybe the Balkans versus the USSR, but there may be some parallels. And particularly class, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you having lived in different ages through, um, you know, an educational system in which, at least on the surface, class seemed to be the overruling, you know, category of analysis of causation, even though perhaps in reality, uh, not necessarily, but um, uh, but the, the main narrative of, you know, Marxist-Leninist-infused um, education, I guess, is that class determines outcomes, political outcomes. Looking looking at the 90s, what do we do with this category of class in terms of what happened to these, these polities? Okay, let me start uh, by saying that uh, I was uh, I had my brief romance with Marxism um, when I was a student at the Moscow State University when I was a historian and I I, I repeat we all need intellectual clutches and then I was searching actively for my intellectual clutches and it just by pure coincidence that I began to read the uh, you know Marxist uh, leftist uh, authors um not only marx not only lenin but leftist authors who were uh, that were available in a special section of uh, a, a moscow library closed for everyone but open for those uh, who had permission and so uh, i began to read it and very very quickly i realized a it's very boring it was boring for me, and B, that there are very, very few Marxists uh, living around me in Moscow with whom I could share my my discoveries, so to say. I held only one, to be uh, precise. There was a you know a woman who had been living, uh, it had lived through destalinization, but still continued to believe in uh, in class and class theory and class struggle. But uh, she told me, "Listen, young man, you know." Uh, read Pulanzas, read, you know, that guy, you know, uh, Roger Garodi and, and other things, and think about middle classes. The future belongs to the middle classes. That was um, her words. And I began to pay attention. And indeed, indeed, as I said, when I, I did research 30, uh, 30 years ago after the Soviet collapse, I did realize that the middle classes, at least the uh, Moscovites, played a, a very big role in what happened to the Soviet Union. They were out in the streets. Those people um, those people formed those mass, mass rallies uh, to which intellectuals and uh, reformers uh, spoke. They were all engineers, you know, uh, mathematicians, physicists, and so on and so forth. And, the, you know, the, what, however, came to me in, in my research is complete um, paradox of why those people were out in the streets demanding immediate end to the system that made their, their class possible. 
because we of course know that as soon as the system collapsed, the the Soviet middle class became bankrupt. It lost jobs. It lost the whole hierarchy of values, including education, that uh, primacy of education and uh, having good libraries and having good education that Leah spoke about. That had become immediately devalued by by the shock therapy, so-called shock therapy reforms. So I- I- Americans at the time, some Westerners who came to Moscow, uh, tried to point out to their Moscow friends, all of them middle cl- educated middle classes, li- listen, you resemble like Turkey that tried to celebrate the coming of Thanksgiving. If classes matter, they matter at the time when they don't express their real interest, when, but when they go after some kind of a dream, after some kind of illusion that totally contradicts their real material interest. So I... I guess my uh, my flirtations with Marx have started much later. I was exposed to it, obviously, as a child through sort of state propaganda and ideology and moral education classes and so on, but it was a very crude version of it. And then I went to study philosophy and I actually promised my parents that I would never have anything to do with Marx, but then somehow couldn't resist because I was interested in, in Kant and then I was interested in Hegel. And if you're interested in Hegel, it's very difficult not to be interested in Marx. And so I kind of, I, I, I discovered it quite late. But what I found when I discovered it was a way of making sense of the world as a kind of interconnected world in which the main agents and drivers of change aren't nations. And where you can study the development of states and and politics and international relations from this perspective, which shows you how the world is still connected and how there's dominant processes and there's structures that generate certain outcomes and generate certain asymmetries of power and inequalities of various sorts, but that aren't amenable to basically state uh, conflicts and to national, national conflicts. And coming from the Balkans, this was very, for me, actually helpful and illuminating because the narrative of post-1990 in the Balkans has all been about states fighting each other for nationalistic reasons and nationalistic interests. And in fact, for some very crude, purely ethnic version of nationalism, which I personally never bought into, because if you think about the relationship between different countries within Yugoslavia, it looked very different from how it ended up looking in post-1990. So how was it? How is it possible that you know you have this entity in which, which is a multinational entity in which countries are getting along? We had relatives. I remember. I mean, Albania was obviously very isolated from Yugoslavia, but we had relatives in Kosovo who would come and looked with horror at Albanian communism. And when they compared it to their experiences under Tito, the nationalism wasn't really an issue. They would never said, oh, we don't want to join. We now want to kind of be part of Albania because Albania was a sort of horrible Stalinist oppressive state. And what they had was clearly much better by comparison. And so for me, this whole, the way in which then nationalism was instrumentalized in post-1990 to wash over all the other responsibilities that could have been financial or economic or political and all the other ways in which the great powers interfered in the Balkans and in some ways were responsible for outcomes, for political outcomes of various kinds in various Balkan states, made me really suspicious suspicious of this kind of nationalistic narrative that focuses on states and so on. And I guess Marxism gave me a way of thinking about the world and thinking about global processes which wasn't reducible and which wasn't reducing the drivers of change or the agents of change or the protagonists of history into these kind of nation states 
we all changed in part because what we lived through. And uh, uh, I agree that uh, what struck me in a comment, uh, writing a book and looking at the 90s, how all of a sudden uh, the, 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 the you know, human cost factor disappeared, particularly from Western accounts, as if human cost uh, existed only to describe the horrors of the communist and Stalinist system. But once the country begins to move in the right direction, then human costs totally disappear as if a a rosy filter descends on the picture. That was really, really striking. But for me personally, I think I, I began to uh, value what I had never valued before. I very much sympathize with Leah's mother. I grew up, I guess, uh, not knowing it as a liberal uh, against um, the state. Uh, but now I really feel the necessity of the state. And that, uh, in a sense, it does not reconcile me, of course, with Putin and the Putinist regime. But I do understand why so many millions of Russians support him out of fear to lose uh, stability and state again. And this value of the state against things that all of a sudden begin to collapse and crush you. Uh, deny you your job. You cannot pour, pay for your uh, plumbing, light, and then food. And now that was very strong reality of the nineties, and that that stays in the memory of people. So, in the same, uh, in 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 a sense, you know, the books that we write, of course, reflections of our families and what we heard from them. But above all, it's the reflections of our personal experience and thinking about this experience. A very interesting point in your book, Leah, is where it, that it also offers a kind of a political history of Albania in the 90s. Up to 1990, the narrative had been that the East was keeping locked its people and so was denying freedom of movement because, you know, if you try to cross the border in Albania, you would be shot, but in other countries as well. And for me, what was really interesting is how when the, 19, well, the, when the system collapsed, basically, and so the borders were open, and the East eventually opens its borders, it's the West that closes its borders. And it closes its borders by basically making it impossible for people to come in unless they have income, unless they can have visas, unless they can um, show that they have connections, that they will integrate, unless they're willing to pray these cultural prices that you were talking about. So even when they manage to come into societies that are foreign to them, they don't really integrate until they decide to convert or to change their name. So there are all these histories of Albanians in Greece, for example, changing into from Muslim names into Greek Orthodox names. This is a very common pattern because it basically meant that they were more accepted and they wouldn't suffer from racism. So it's, it goes overnight from being a story of dissidents that are welcomed and treated as heroes and are given political asylum immediately with all the benefits that political asylum comes to them being classified as economic migrants, even though it's much the same people and they're living the same countries and they're living from the same conditions, but the categorization, the narrative framing of who they are and what they do to the societies in which they are received changes overnight. But yeah, I remember the 90s, I was going through, for example, these visa interviews, sitting at American embassy queues, and just the experience of witnessing the humiliation of old men and women who were just interrogated by these embassy officials on what their intentions were, how can you prove that you're not going to stay in the United States or United Kingdom or whatever the relevant embassy was. And, you know, these people shaking in front of them in tears or in when they didn't get their visas coming out and having lost the money that they had put into 
trying to pay. For me, these were really marking experiences and kind of fundamentally making me doubt about the kind of system in which we had ended up and the, what that system promised compared to what we had left behind. You know, I totally sim- empathize with the story of uh, Leah. I, I saw it all. I was in lines for American visa, uh, you know, and, you know, and then I, I made it. I was in the West and uh, benefited from it. We are all experiential. I mean, we can read and read and read, but it's only experience that really changes our perspective. We are now talking to each other 30 years after these events, these transitions, and I'm wondering how are they discussed, these events? I mean, right now in, in the context that you know you write about, Albania would be a case study, and even Russia today, you know, what part does, how does the memory of these events feature in, in debates within Russia and Albania, Albania these days? I haven't uh, actually seen a lot of commemoration or memory or remembrance of these events. In fact, yesterday was the uh, 80th anniversary of the founding of the Albanian Communist Party, and I was browsing the web to find a single single mention of the fact that it was the 80th anniversary of the founding of the Albanian Communist Party. It's really important, and the time seems to be ripe, to have a more nuanced analysis of what happened and what went wrong, and you know, perhaps along the lines in which Vladislav reads and, and tells the story in his book, which is as open-minded as possible and as critical as possible and as nuanced as possible. Uh, this is a very important question, and it's a good way to conclude our discussion. Putin said in 2007, it's a, you know, the Soviet Union's fall is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe. And uh, okay. Uh, then Tusk said that there was a great fortune for the countries of Eastern Europe that the Soviet Union collapsed. We're still talking to grand narratives created by politicians for their own uses. So, you know, the big, big question is uh, how our books will be received. Who will read them? I suspect in the case of my book, it doesn't address the grand American narratives of the past. My only hope is that right now these grand narratives are not in great shape. Uh, the elites in power in Russia definitely do not need to be reminded that most of them had started as uh, young communists. Most of the population uh, quietly, but in a suppressed way, resent what happened in 1991 and cannot even tolerate the name of Gorbachev and Yeltsin. They're the most reviled figure uh, on a deep undercurrent. And intellectuals, intellectuals are, you know, I can mention only one group of intellectuals that are actually interested in the discussion of uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. They're exactly liberal economists who continue to drum uh, the same drumbeat that we were right. The shock therapy was the only way. We didn't cause this great suffering of the people. When I uh, realized uh, the landscape is uh, unpropitious, I said to myself, well, I'll still write a book and then someday people will read it. Thank you very much, Vladislav and Lea, for sharing your also your personal takes on these these books. Um, I really hope that they find not only readers who are kind of trained in this sort of tourist gaze on various failures of socialism or the end of history, but actually really want to engage with the visceral part of, of the story, the complex part, and the one that doesn't actually uh, have very easy lessons. 
Do you have ideas for music that we could play? It's I'm very not sure generational, what Gina. It's very generational. Mm-hmm. Well, I cannot think of anything but the international. <laughs> when I think about the 90s, I think about Albano and Romina. Do you know? Yeah. I remember them from Germany. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There is actually um, a cover version of Albano and Romina Power's most famous song, Felicità, by a late Soviet electronic rock band, Stranne Igre, from 1985. So let's play that. Today on International History Now, we've been talking about Lea Uppi's free coming of age at the end of history, out with Penguin Ellen Lane, and Vladislav Zubok's collapse, the fall of the Soviet Union, with Yale University Press. Go and read these wonderful books, and thanks for listening to another episode of International History Now. Thank you.